On Being is supported in part by Penguin Press, the publishers of Krista Tippett's New York Times bestselling book, Becoming Wise, An Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. A grounded and fiercely hopeful vision of humanity for this century, of personal growth, renewed public life, and human spiritual evolution. Becoming Wise is available now, wherever books are sold. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unhurt Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jonathan Haidt and Melvin Connor. Download the MP3 of our produced show with them at onbeing.org. Hello. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say, I always say that I think PowerPoint is the death of the spoken word. And, but I really enjoyed these PowerPoints tonight. Um, but I, ha- I also have to say that we are recording this in the hopes that we may be able to broadcast it. So our listeners will not have seen the presentation you've seen. So we may cover some of the same ground um, as though it is new. Uh, I'm so happy to be back at the American Museum of Natural History and to be here with Humans in Nature, the Center for Biodiversity. Um, this is our second year to be here. Of course, I'm delighted... To be in New York City, um, I'm very proud to be on WNYC, and I was listening to their fun drive today, as many of you probably were, so I hope you're all pledging. I will say, do, do you go by Jonathan or John? John. John. Okay, so John and Mel. Mel. Okay. Um, that, of course, when you ask that question about political preference, I did not raise my hand because I have absolutely no political positions as a public radio host. <laughs> um, the secretary will disavow all knowledge. <laughs> but I do want to welcome all those Republicans in the closet who didn't raise their hands. I'm sure there are more than three of you out there, and you are welcome to. Um, and I oh, so I have to thank uh, Brooke Hecht and and uh, and um, Anya Claus and Kate Cummings, and I'm forgetting people. But anyway, so happy to be here. Um, This question of the connection between culture and conscience is fascinating, and we are only going to kind of skim the surface tonight, but I hope we will skim the surface in a way that will be intriguing and leave all of us with lots to ponder uh, and discuss in the rest of our lives. Um, Here are some of the questions that the Center for Humans and Nature has sort of related questions that they've posed. Uh, What are the connections between culture and conscience? How do humans discern between right and wrong? How does culture influence our values? And as I've read into John, Jonathan Haidt and and Melvin Connor's work, you you have expanded and nuanced this question with others, such as, if no one is looking, why not do something evil, something selfish at others' expense instead? Do we have to be taught the difference between good and bad, right and wrong? Are we naturally drawn towards either? Um, John, you know, you've asked, what should we celebrate? What should we lament and resist? How can we plan for the future when we can rest assured that our children will see things differently than we do, especially in Asia and other regions that are embracing capitalism and the transformation it brings? I'm really delighted to be discussing these questions with... Melvin Connor and Jonathan Haidt, a biological anthropologist and physician, a social psychologist. And it's fascinating to me that both of these disciplines in which, the, which each of you work um, has radically different perspectives and vocabulary and tools than when you began, and probably mm-hmm. even than 10 years ago. Um, and I think that a thread that runs through both of your writing 
on this subject is that like our understanding of the world, like the lifespan of a species or a human being, like culture, conscience, too, has an evolutionary quality to it, an evolutionary trajectory. Um, Mel, you've said human nature, like the body, has evolved slowly over time. So I'd like to start... um, by way of also getting kind of a definition of terms uh, and a sense of the evolution in your own understanding of this, to 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 just spend a little time on, you know, the origins of your sense of the meaning of conscious, the, where you started out in your earliest life. Um, so, John, your parents were Jewish, um, mm-hmm. second generation American mm-hmm. union organizers. Mm-hmm. They were My on grandparents that, were union. Your grandparents yes. were union organizers, so they were on that exploitative capitalism narrative. Mm-hmm. That's right. They were, they were fighting the fight that needed to be fought back then. Okay. Um, so, so just how would you start to talk about how you, in your earliest life, internalized the meaning of conscious, conscience? You know, what were its raw materials and sources? Um, gosh. Making it personal here, I have to now reflect. Well, we're all very good at making up stories on the fly that are plausible, so I guess I'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> You know, we're actually there's interesting developmental research that we're we're socialized in a sense more by our peers and those around us than we are directly by our parents. Our parents set up the conditions for our lives, yeah. and my parents gave me and my sisters very very good uh, conditions. Um, <clears throat> and beyond that, I think I'm very much a product of you know upper middle class Jewish New York suburbs America. I then went to Yale, where I was very much uh, fit in with a you know, very left-wing social activist kind of view. So I think I'm very much a pro- my morals, my values are very much a product of my time. Um, I will say that what I've learned in starting to do this research on capitalism and studying the World Value Survey is that I used to think that culture, what I learned, and I, I did a postdoc in anthropology um, uh, with Richard Schwader, a mutual friend of ours, and what I used to think is that culture Culture is, is mostly should be thought of as a set of ideas that, that previous generations created, a network of meanings that comes down to us. And what I now see is that while that is true, so much of what we are actually emerges from the conditions of our childhood. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I grew up in such different conditions from my parents means that whatever messages they wanted to give me wouldn't necessarily fit. Oh, interesting. So I think actually our, our local environments uh, in a way have more to do than our parents do. Mm-hmm. Which is discouraging for all of us who are parents. Well, just pick, pick a good environment. <laughs> Except and then, that it get, we don't, then it gets you off the hook. <laughs> exactly. We worry we're not doing a good enough job, so that may not matter so much. Um, so, Melik, you, you were raised in a... Your parents were Orthodox Jewish also. Right. They were also both deaf. Um, Correct. I, I, yeah. I, I wonder how you... Um, again, this question, how did you... If you think about that, how did you internalize... How did you start out in terms of what conscience was? Well, I came from a lower middle class family, and and, uh, and so my mother's parents, who were not deaf and who were very religious, uh, lived with us during our uh, during my early childhood until um, I was eight or so. Uh, he, my grandfather uh, was responsible for for putting me in the stream of religious training, and so I stayed. Uh, I was in the synagogue pretty much every day yeah. from age eight till sixteen or so, and 
and as I, as I mentioned in my talk, uh, I, I was imbued with the idea that, that there are negative impulses in our makeup, that, in our nature, that uh, have to be controlled. By reference to uh, the scripture, basically, to, to some sort of revealed text or some sort of model, and this is how religious people think. I mean, my, you know, my uh, friends who are religious Christians um, are emulating Christ. Uh, my friends who are Orthodox Jews are obeying 613 commandments. Uh, my friends who are Buddhist monks are trying to accumulate karma <laughs> uh, that, that's yeah. going to ensure that they won't uh, be... be um, Coming back in a future life in some undesirable state, and and uh, and maybe eventually uh, achieve liberation. Um, these stories um, have have motivated uh, billions of people and continue to do that. So I, th- I think the um, the real puzzle is that now, as as Jonathan, I, I agree with John uh, that that. Uh, Things are now uh, changing faster. Culture is now changing faster than it ever has before. It it has uh, it still has a persistent quality in many families, transgenerationally. Uh, but certainly, my kids uh, have uh, uh, have not imbued uh, all the values that I tried to transmit to them. And and the real but the real question I think is if you don't if you don't have the example of Christ or Buddha, if you don't have scripture, if you don't have right. have karma and and uh, a future life, why be good? Why why not just be selfish and and uh, we we all know uh, that that um, it's perfectly compatible with atheism to be a really good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the world becomes more secular and rational, um, uh, we have to hope that, uh, that that's going to be quite possible for th- those billions of people who I think are going to, in the not-too-distant future, and anthropologists always take the long view, you know, uh, uh, that there will, <laughs> will be uh, an orderly transition to a good world without a code book. Okay, so I think I think what we're going to talk about for the next hour is how that orderly. What are the ingredients of that orderly transition? And I mean, one thing that's interesting to me in your writing is you you talk about that religious world of your childhood and also these other religious worlds, as you describe. Certainly, the Southern Baptist religious world of mine. That you know that we have evil tendencies and we have good tendencies, and but the good ones need commandments to flourish. There were these. These, uh, there was this foundation, um, and in fact, you know, you've uh, there. There's there's a noble lineage to that. I mean, there's kind of um, you've also looked at the the evolution of how culture instills conscience in children, and um, it's also it was also true of our Puritan ancestors that that um, you had to. Well, you said you know you had to that that there without fear there was no conscience that that these things had to be drilled in and that there so spare the rod and spoil spoil the child. What? Yes. Sorry. Yeah, spare yeah, the, spare rod the rod and spoil, spoil the, child. the child. Which turns yeah. out to not really be true. Turns right? out to not be. <laughs> right. It, but it kind of makes you wonder. Also, um, well, it, it certainly seems wrong from our perspective. 
Um, I mean, it's interesting. You you talk about you know Freud comes along, Piaget comes along. There are ways in which we start to study children differently, ask different questions. I think there's you know to me there's a question of do we change, um, and we start to see that that young human beings instinctively understand that there's a point to rules, that there's something called playing fair that makes sense. Um, did you say instinctively? Hmm? Did you say instinctively? That the children, young children, intuitively, yeah. intuitively, yeah. intuitively. Yeah. Okay. Is that yes. different from yes. instinctively? No, I agree. I agree completely. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I know the distinction, but yes, intuitively. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, buy, I'll buy that. <laughs> well, yeah. and and then we get to the point where we are now in the early 21st century, and someone like you can say it this way: that empathy is in us from the beginning as a potential, right? Not not necessarily in everyone a kind of emotional brain resonance enhanced by mirror neurons, which is a whole other way of looking at ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm just, again, I'm fascinated by the evolution of our way of grappling with this. Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's been a positive Evolution in most ways. Uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, Jonathan, John didn't, didn't even talk about the health statistics, which I focus on uh, um, and, and teach about uh, globally. If you use those measures, uh, I mean, it's, it's astounding so how some, steady the progress has been in reducing infant mortality, reducing child mortality. I mean, I, I, you know, some I, I, at least a couple of our four kids. I, I've, Trouble getting to 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 take an optimistic view of the of the future or of the recent past because uh, they're on the other side of that divide that uh, that you talked about, um, which is uh, as my wife and points out, I was exactly in that in that place when I was their age. <laughs> uh, right, right. Um, but but uh, I do think that we have a really hard job to do in the next. 50 to 100 years. As I say, anthropologists take the long view. I take the long view, so I'm optimistic about, the let's say, the year uh, 2150. Um, but I, John, you said in, in, your, um, uh, in your essay that you contributed to the, the center website uh, that you don't think that ten, this planet can support 10 billion people in a Western lifestyle, and actually nobody who knows thinks that. But there are going to be 10 billion people mm-hmm. uh, before the end of this century. Um, Africa is, the Af- population of Africa alone is going to quadruple in size by current projections. Um, that is the poorest part of the world. Uh, it's not, uh, to me, it's not guaranteed that that uh, the 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 trajectory will be relentlessly up. Those who who know more than I do about these things project uh, uh, wars over fresh water right. of of a major nature, uh, possibly a Malthusian uh, 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 dilemma returning if we can't because because it's not the. It's not the hungry mouths. You can show that, that, that there will be enough food to feed 10 billion mouths. It's about, it's about the, the, the overall aspirations that those people will have. It's about the, uh, the people in villages in Africa and India who are today 
looking at the one TV set in their village showing our lifestyle. How do you, how do you um, make, the, how do we as a species make this transition if we are convinced that we can't support 10 billion people uh, in a lifestyle like ours? And we're also convinced that, that there are going to be 10 billion people. Yeah. Which, John, I think actually leads in an interesting way to the direction your thinking has been taking, this idea that culture creates conscience, um, changes conscience. And also, again, I keep using this word evolutionary, that the capitalism, I don't mean cap, not that culture changes conscience, that capitalism, which is the economic milieu. I, I, I thought your phrase that the 20th century was a great referendum mm-hmm. on is there an alternative economic system. Of course, there are so many. There's, there's biodiversity of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, uh, but this is what we have. And, but your analysis that there are different stages of capitalism. And um, w- would you say a little bit about that? Because I think it gets at Mel's mm-hmm. question. Sure. Of, it kind of shakes up the scenario if we think that capitalism itself, as it grows... <clears throat> Um, as we have more people who are living in these societies, um, mm-hmm. also begins to change and change mm-hmm. us differently. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, when I was in college, I first read Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. And like many people, it just blew my mind. And Darwin's, Darwin's ideas are so simple. Uh, from a few principles, you can explain all the diversity of life on Earth, as in the quote that Mel showed. <clears throat> and that was a really transformative experience for me. Um, and then when I moved to Stern, as I said in my, in my lecture here, when I, you know, when I started reading about the history of capitalism, um, it, I had the same experience. I, I just happened to buy a set of lectures from the teaching company by an intellectual historian named Jerry Mueller. I highly recommend it, M-U-L-L-E-R. Um, he has a, a, a book He has a book on the history of capitalism, but he has a set of uh, lectures there on the history of capitalism. And in listening to them, I had the same experience that I had reading Richard Dawkins. I was about 48 years old at the time. I'm well-educated, and I knew nothing about the system that explains why everything is here, including this microphone, this glass, our clothing, us, the transport, everything. And so capitalism is as powerful and important as Darwinian evolution. And in fact, it's very much the same thing. When you have variation and competition and selection, you get this incredible energy, you get this incredible adaptability. And so I think Mel and I both, from reading, from reading Mel's work and listening to him talk, I think Mel and I both, coming from very different directions, have just been really impressed by the, the need. If you want to understand complicated things, you have to see things as being constantly in motion, constantly changing. And we both, separately, by very different routes, came to the view that you, evolution is absolutely essential to understanding human nature and behavior. And culture is absolutely essential to understanding the two. And it turns out that they're, they're intimately linked. Um, so I guess what I'm saying uh, is that um, I wish everybody in high school, here, here's what I wish we could do. Let's cancel two years of math for all of our high school students. Everything beyond, everything beyond basic algebra you don't need. Even if you're a scientist, you don't need it. So cancel, almost, <laughs> cancel most of the math and put in statistics, economics, basic economics, uh, and I think introductory psychology. 
give people quantitative skills that will make them good citizens. Don't waste so much time on math. But anyway, the point is, everybody should learn about capitalism and evolution by the time mm-hmm. they're 18. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, at, at present we don't. And that means we have stupid discussions about policy. So, 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 so you know, we've, we all saw the, the, the chart on the PowerPoint um, about the trajectory from, w- w- you know, where people are when capitalism begins and where it takes societies and people and, and I think you're saying us as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's just a very simplistic sentence, but a sense of it is, as people become richer and safer, their values change. Yep. And there's kind of an ironic thing that happens yep. that Marx did not foresee, um, that that the beneficiaries of capitalist wealth, um, younger people, begin to demand more socially and environmentally responsible behavior from each other and from their governments. That's right. That's right. This is what we see um, in, in all of these rapidly emerging nations. Um, the generation that, uh, and you see this all over, so you see it all over Asia especially. A simple way to put it is that almost everybody in Asia um, has grandparents that uh, were that grew up at times of either famine, war, disease. They could not count on a long future. Um, the, the transition is particularly clear in Korea, which went from uh, from poverty and Japanese oppression to the Korean War. And that generation of Koreans, uh, including my wife's family, um, they have these incredible virtues about family and saving and hard work, and they don't really care that much about human rights and gender rights and all these other sorts of things. But their kids, who were not raised with this kind of privation and fear, their kids begin to care about all these things. And you see it all over Asia. The young generation begins to care more about animal rights, human rights, gay rights, women's rights. So here's the irony. The left generally hates capitalism, but capitalism changes everybody's values to be more leftist. You know, I was thinking as I was reading, uh, as I was reading to prepare for this about this ad on television right now, and I can't, I can't remember what the, what the, what it's trying to sell. I think it's a computer that has these beautiful pictures of young children and how they will be able to be who they want to be or we want them to be if you buy this product, whatever it is. And, and it says, yes. says, it says something like. Uh, she will clean the oceans, right? Have you all seen that? And mm-hmm. I thought, aren't we clever as a species that we think <laughs> we mess up the oceans and then we raise children to clean them up? But that's, that's you know, exactly it. it? That's but right. it's exactly what you're saying. That's, right. that's what that's we right. do. That's right. And so there's a thing called the Kuznets curve. I don't know it well enough to explain it, but the general point, I should, shouldn't have mentioned it, but the general point... <laughs> is that there are certain things that might happen. That's because you studied math. But there are certain processes where we might, uh, we might um, so with increasing development, we might pollute more and more. Right. Uh, and that certainly has happened. But then we begin to care about it, and we develop technologies, so that now what's happening is for each additional unit of growth, we're polluting less and less and less. Of course, the total pollution is still going up, but that's going to start turning soon. Um, and especially, and this is a, to, to build on what Mel was saying, um, the population is going to be turning. 
while it's true that we'll have 10 billion people, we probably will reach 10 billion, there's two different parts of our planet. There's sub-Saharan Africa and there's everything else. In everything else, the birth rate is already way below 2.0, 2.1. So all over Asia, East Asia, Europe, even Latin America, India is still above two, but it's dropping. So outside of sub-Saharan Africa, um, birth rates are below two and the p- total population will begin dropping in a few decades. So um, the 22nd century is going to be one that's vastly depopulated except in Africa. So it's two very different planets. And the story in Africa, I don't know what's going to happen. And eventually I expect these changes will happen. Um, but uh, well, yeah, I think we see what's happening. Africa is moving to Europe. Right. And that's, that's right. going to have to continue. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and, and that may not be such a bad thing. You know, the... the uh, uh, Angela Merkel has figured out yeah, that she needs, not, she needs yeah. young people. It's not you know out of just out of the goodness of her heart that she's taking in a million yeah. uh, uh, refugees and other migrants. But I, you know, the if my kids were here, they, they'd be yelling in my ear. You got to tell them about global warming. You got to tell them that we're you know we're facing a crisis. You got to tell them that that this optimistic view may never come about if if right. we don't solve the problems between. Here, here, and there, right? And um, you know, John, I, I, I take your point about capitalism being similar to Dar- Darwinian evolution in certain ways, but you want it to be similar to to the last lines of the Origin of Species. You know, beautiful forms, most wonderful, are being evolved, uh, and and you don't want it to be like Darwin's letter to Joseph Hooker about the you know the wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature. But both we, we, you know, time. it has been at times like that, that bad kind of well, of, right. uh, of Darwinian evolution, and and it might be again if we don't, uh, if if our conscience, collective conscience, doesn't respond to the demands of the uh, of the short term future. Yeah, and I I feel like there are some echoes in in this way you see our present and our future with the complexity even of that rabbinical tradition you grew up in, that we are at one and the same time capable of helping and harming. Um, I mean, even that, right, the, the refugee crisis that you're talking about, uh, you know, it, it may be a good thing. And, you know, I think I've never been so moved as when I heard Angela Merkel say uh, to to her fellow Germans, this this will change us and we have to do it so that it changes us for the better. That was, that was a few weeks ago. Um, but, you know, as you're saying, it may in fact work out that way, but with some very hard, harsh decades in between. So how do we, uh, yeah. how do we make those decades less harsh? I think that, the, you know, I uh, sometimes I think I, you know, I have the long-term optimism of a of a liberal, but the uh, the short-term pessimism of a conservative, uh, <laughs> and, uh, because of my views of human nature and mm-hmm. and uh, the limits to to uh, its its malleability. Um, we are I, I, the good news is we are almost the first generation, certainly the 
the last uh, uh, couple of generations are the, the first people on the planet to view, to have a conscience about the whole planet, to have a conscience about all non-living things, to have a conscience about, to have, have a sense of humanity as one thing. And I'm going to bet that every person in this room has that sense, and even I, I though there are plenty it, yeah. of people in the world who don't have that kind of conscience yet. But their children will. But, but their children right. their children do or, or, or will, or at least might. Yeah. And I, I think that's so important also to name that and to point that out because we, you know, everybody in this room takes it for granted. Right. And, and, uh, and that's certainly, uh, my kids are like that. <laughs> um, I don't take it for granted. And mm-hmm. they, uh, um, you know, you can't really watch the news for very long to, uh, and, and, and take it for granted, even though. Um, the the trends that, that John pointed out and that Pinker has pointed out are, are real. Um, <clears throat> you know, the even even including <clears throat> World War One and World War Two, the twentieth century was was still the least violent century per capita uh, in human history up mm-hmm. till then. And but I don't think we want to see those things repeated, even even if the the. The declining uh, trend is still true in the 21st century. We don't want to see those things, those yeah. kind of things, happen again, and and we can't take. I think we can't uh, really take anything for granted. Yeah. I think there's a bit of a perspective problem here on human nature. Um, it's often said that conservatives uh, have more of a, a of a dark view of human nature as being sinful. Liberals are said to have a more positive view of human nature, sort of the John Lennon idea that if we could just get rid of government and religion, then we'd all be nice. <laughs> but yet at the same time. Liberals are so committed to a narrative of, of oppression and exploitation that they can't take good news. They can't accept good news. And so, you know, violence is plummeting. I mean, you know, there's, there's all kinds of progress on global warming. Pollution's getting better. Racism is down. Rape is way down, actually, although you wouldn't know that if you live yeah. on a college campus because the news is always about rape going up. But it's going way, it's going way down. Um, so for various reasons, the left and the right are negative in different ways. Now, my view, having immersed myself in human evolution, I don't know, Mel, I find out if you have the same experience, is I, you know, we, we, Mel, we both dig into, you know, how did we, how did we get civilization? Like, what, what were hunter-gatherers life? What, what was that like? And how did we get here? And my view is we're this little tribal species that was basically just sort of, you know, beating each other up and competing with each other uh, in, in all these ways. And somehow or other, we have risen so vastly far above our design specifications. I look around at us and I say, go humanity. We are fantastic. I mean, yeah, there's ISIS. There's a lot of bad stuff. But, you know, it's like you people who think that things are bad, like you are expecting way too much. <laughs> but I think, John... I, I do want to talk. You know, I, I think when you use a, when you use a language like conscience, mm-hmm. and we assume that it's a good, mm-hmm. um, or that there's progress, we're it's talking restraint right? on our behavior that allows us to live with each other. Sure, but but, but I mean, but what a lot of what your work is about is the fact that uh, I may be a highly conscientious person, and you may too, and I may find the way. You know the the how you describe conscience and what conscience action would be mm-hmm. as despicable, right? So there's so so so. Wait, I'm sorry, it, what you describe con- what? Wait, I'm saying that here. I'm saying that we we don't you know a lot of what your work is about is about how liberals and conservatives, for example, as mm-hmm. orientations, not mm-hmm. as voting blocks, um, 
find each other's value systems to be inexplicable at best and, and, and possibly offensive at worst. So, so, so even as we progress, if we assume that we are progressing, um, there's that dilemma. That's right. So, here, so this is a really interesting thing about democracy. Um, so, I, you know, we, so in America... We worship it. A lot of my research is on sacred values, and you know, there's certain things we worship democracy. Now, you know, the founding fathers did not worship democracy. In fact, they thought it was a really bad system. They thought that the masses can't be trusted, so they gave us a republic. Uh, and I don't know the history. Maybe it was World War One and Woodrow Wilson. I don't know. But at some point, Americans we fought a bunch of wars for democracy, so now we worship democracy. Um, well, democracy has a lot of problems. When you sort of workshop fine details of policy in TV ads to try to make voters angry at the other side, that's a really bad way to do policy. And um, so, and what I saw in many Asian countries, I was surprised to learn that they're experiencing the same polarization that we are. Hmm. So in Korea, in Japan, in Taiwan, um, uh, uh, a few other countries, not China because they don't have parties at all, but in, those, in, uh, in many other young democracies, the next generation is they're all at each other's throats over different issues in different countries. But polarization is a big problem for democracies. So our political institutions were developed various decades or centuries ago, and as human nature is changing, as things are changing, often they're not up to the task. So I'm not optimistic about the American government, but I am very optimistic about America's future because I think the the you know people our age who grew up expecting that the, you know the, the point of civic engagement is to be active so that we can make the government fix civil rights or something we got to make the government do something and young people have grown up never seen the government do anything except turn the lights off now and then and so they're not going to be they're not their activism is not going to be to get the government to do things right. it's going to be to invent a way of some app some way of solving problems separately and that's going to work so i'm actually very optimistic about the future just not the congress <laughs> Well, I, you know, the, the, the idea that we're more polarized than, than we've ever been, I think, is, is not true. Uh, the, the, if you read about the election of 1800, you see by far the nastiest elect, presidential right. election but, but since that the Civil this country War, we are has more ever polarized, had. We are more polarized than we've been since the Civil War. Well... <laughs> Yeah, the Civil War was pretty uh, yeah. That's right. That's why, serious. That's why I start my counting after the episode of polarization. you know, I worry. I I guess I I, I worry about uh, about complacency. I don't think that that uh, the founding generation expected the uh, things things to go smoothly, uh, no. uh, or, or that or, it went smoothly with them, or that it went smoothly yeah. with them. I think I think that uh, in fact even. Even uh, uh, government stagnation and, uh, uh, was not a foreign idea to them and, and not necessarily a bad one because that's what the checks and balances were for, for to prevent anybody from grabbing the ball and, and running because with it too they, far. Because they built in a complex understanding of human nature. Exactly. That that you know, evil yeah, inclination the, the was there the and that you needed to... The constitution is, yeah. is a monograph <coughs> out of a, a, a research lab on human nature, mm. it's a bunch of people, mostly men, but you know, some with with very smart wives who contributed a lot, like uh, mm. like Abigail Adams, yeah. and 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 really um, uh, taking a, a a a dark view of human nature and and human potential, and and uh, seeing what had happened in Europe, and not and and wanting to construct a, an apparatus that that. 
really was a great achievement of social science uh, in, in, uh, in preventing any, any group or, or individual from getting too much power and from playing out the, the dark side of human nature uh, easily. So that, I mean, they built, they built, they, they had a conscience they, and, and, and they wanted the country to, to, to have it, but they also knew that, in fact, um, what were then, uh, you know, Whigs and Tories represented a, a, uh, a permanent kind of division in, in human life between mm. people mm. Uh, who like things to, to progress faster and people who don't. And and that hasn't that hasn't changed. And and uh, th- this permanent balance, we st- we still have. We call it terrible polarization. But it's uh, uh, I I agree with John. You know uh, 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 on on this that that people sometimes people seem to me to be expecting too much. Well, so I mean, so here's here's one way I'd say with one one way you've you've honored your the caution you have and the realism you have but you know you say the definition of humanity the people we are decent to has widened which which, which may sound modest but it, but it's incredibly it's significant it's really great yeah and and uh, even you point out that we even inhabit the non-human world differently right and and um so we've seen, I, I, basically, in my in my lifetime, uh, and I'm old, but I'm not, you know, uh, it's not even a century, and I, <laughs> I've seen um, just people people in the United States uh, uh, as a group go from from believing that nature was there to be exploited, and and you could, you, you that it was yeah. that nature was so powerful and so vast. That that you know God gave it to us. We we exploit it. We use it, and we're we're going to you know keep doing that forever. To to something like uh, like the opposite. Like uh, and it's delicate. It's mm. it, we have a we have a new conscience with respect to the non-human world or the world that's not human, and and uh, and the idea, the concept that the planet is vulnerable. That's a very new idea. Uh, and it's a new it's a new type of of uh, of conscientiousness and uh, and it's something to celebrate i think and I think that John, by your analysis, you would say certainly that has something to do with the science of climate change and what we see and the way the natural world is changing, but also you might say that there's something in this development of Late stage capitalism, or whatever stage we will look like when history is done, um, that also lends itself to that development. Um, well, yes, the, the, there is a general direction to the history or the evolution of morality, uh, and it generally is towards expanding the moral circle, towards declining violence. Now, there can be setbacks. Um, I think the the, uh, communist bloc countries experienced some real setbacks. However bad communism was, um, at least they had some predictability, and in the 90s they lost that. And so um, you you can see some you could see some retrogression, mm-hmm. but the general direction of progress is is pretty much one way, and I think that's just wonderful. I wonder how the two of you think about um, how 
globalization, um, it, 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 is it a pressure on us to change morally? I mean, it is true now to a degree that I, I believe it's never been true, that our well-being, in fact, is linked to the well-being mm-hmm. yes. of strangers, mm-hmm. you know, not just across the city, but across the globe. Um, that cooperation has become a matter of survival, whether we can really see that in every moment and every day. Um, do you imagine that this is changing this, our conscience, whatever that is? Uh, we certainly can. Uh, well, I think there's a line, is it, let's see, is it, uh, is it Adam Smith or is it David Hume, about how if a man reads a newspaper and he sees uh, about an earthquake in China, uh, and a million souls lost, he'll say, oh, how terrible, how sad, and then he'll turn the page and he's on the rest of his day. But if he were to discover that his little pinky were to be cut off the next day, he could not possibly sleep. Um, uh, well, we're much more linked now than, than we used to be. Um, our care is still going to be much more parochial, but the fact that it extends out at all is quite miraculous. Um, the worst problems, by far the worst problems of capitalism occur in the supply chain. By far, the, the people who get squeezed and crushed and exploited are the people at the far ends of the global supply chain. So uh, it's the garment workers in Bangladesh who are forced, who are ordered to go back into work in a building that has visible cracks in it. They're ordered to go back in or they're fired, and then the building collapses the next day. Um, so these are, this, if you want to hate capitalism, this is the thing to hate. Mm-hmm. But here's what I find, again, so exciting is, These things happen. These are part of capitalism. But it's not that everybody just says, oh, well, just let them happen. When that happens, people get very upset. And then smart people start thinking, well, how can we get people to get, how can we solve this? So I'm in, I'm in the business and society program. I'm still not as important as my pinky might be Of course be not, off. no. And <laughs> right. Again, I don't, yeah, I, it never will be, and I wouldn't want it to be. But it's not zero anymore. Yes, so it's I, stern. I, I agree. I see that too. But, but John, when your grandparents were, were union organizing, mm-hmm. get uh, workers into unions, the garment workers were a few blocks from here. Mm-hmm. And now they're they're on the other side of the world, and we read about them. But we we've, we've exported a lot of things, the, a lot of uh, oppression right. that we used to have around the corner, and now now it's over there, and we are aware of it. But mm-hmm. you know we can live with it. And and the, when we talk about about the conversion to the service economy, well, of course. One of the reasons we and we and and Europeans have been able to convert to to the service economy is that we've exported the manufacturing and and the agriculture mm-hmm. elsewhere, uh, not so much uh, the United States but but Europe and Japan certainly and uh, uh, and all of us have exported the manufacturing and some of the manufacturing conditions are, uh, in the developing world are really terrible and. Um, and I, you know, it's a, I don't see necessarily an absolutely linear improvement uh, as as we try. And we, what, where where do we get manufactured goods? Well, do robots do it? If robots do it, then how do the people who are now doing the manufacturing jobs in Bangladesh, terrible as they are, at least they have an income. What do they do then? What's their service economy based on? Maybe maybe. We can make the transition to to uh, an incredibly high tech robotic economy and 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 all the uh, comfortable lives of, <laughs> of service professions, but mm-hmm. um, I, I don't see that as necessarily a linear 
Yeah. But, I, but I think we should stay on the question of globalization and sweatshops and supply chain a little bit longer. Um, I'm teaching a business ethics class at Stern right now. And last week, we read an essay from 1997. The title of it was In Praise of Cheap Labor. And it was a very well-known economist who was arguing that no matter how bad sweatshops look, people choose to work in them because it's much better than the alternative out in the countryside. And yes, it looks terrible to us, but they are actually lifting themselves up. The name of this economist is Paul Krugman. Um, and m- most economists understand this logic uh, that people are choosing to work there. Now, often they don't have any other choice. I'm not saying that makes it automatically mm-hmm. okay. But what I'm saying is globalization, like so much else in the world, is ugly if you look at it step by step or if you look at people's motives. But yet the net effect is exactly those graphs that I showed where poverty is plummeting, people are being lifted up. And so what I see happening as a social psychologist is we have all this moral software in our heads that make us judge people by their intentions. And these Western brands that go into these places, they just want the cheapest labor they can get. They don't care about those people, and that's true. So if you want to judge capitalism by the intentions of the people, well, you'll say, oh, well, this is really ugly. I want socialism. Because there, you know, and I had, a, I, I was on a panel with the Dalai Lama once, and I asked him if, you know, if, if the Chinese left Tibet and you came in, what government would you put in? He'd say, well, me, I, you know, I, no secret, I'm a, I'm a, uh, um, a Marxist, a you know, Marxist, but not a Leninist, a different kind of Marxist. <laughs> yeah. And he said, communism is the only system that cares about the poor. Mm-hmm. And so again, if your judgment is, do you care about the poor? You might want communism. But if you actually want people to not starve to death and be thrown into gulags, you should probably go with globalization and capitalism. Yeah, so, so the real, I agree that the real question is how high is the floor under the poor. It's not how rich is the richest person. Mm-hmm. It's right. how high is the floor mm-hmm. under the poor, and that's the, that's the challenge uh, for our conscience. And, it's, and John showed graphs that, that show that in the United States the the Floor, the, the, Everyone's the, getting the, richer. The, the objective uh, uh, material well-being well of uh, uh, of the poor has increased slightly. While the forty percent in yeah. thirty years is a lot. Okay, so so um, what do you make of the the psychological data on on well-being that shows that it's as much or more determined by your perceived place on the ladder right. uh, than it is on your absolute material. Wealth and and, yeah. and in fact that countries where inequality is greater uh, are are countries where well being is lower, mm-hmm. regardless of where the bottom is. Mm-hmm. Mel, I'm glad is that you gave right? me well. I'm <laughs> glad you gave me the chance to correct um, a, an error that I myself have propagated, which is. <laughs> That it, it, it used to be said in the nineties and the early. Criticizing me to, for reading your papers. <laughs> I'm uh, no, go ahead. Um, so um, it was widely reported in the nineties and into the two thousands that uh, money only buys happiness when you're poor. You know, going from poor to middle class, you get happier. Uh, but once you reach seventy thousand dollars, this was a figure from Dan Kahneman and others. Once you reach about seventy thousand dollars sort of middle middle to maybe upper middle class status in America, further money doesn't make you happier. But it turns out that was never really true, um, because while it's true that the thing curves, you, know, you can be 10 or 20 or 30 standard deviations above the mean. Um, you can keep rising. More importantly, the data, when people say how happy they are, like how much they experience positive emotions versus negative emotions, that does level off uh, around $70,000 a year. But when you ask people overall, 
think about your life as a whole. How well is your life going compared to the best possible life for yourself or the worst possible life for yourself? That, it turns out, goes up and up and up, and it keeps going up and up and up. In other words, um, the, the press especially, because they tend not to be rich, they love these findings that, that you know, once you more... Over well, there's a matter, real generalization. But, 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 <laughs> all right, all right. My point is just that money, money actually well, does buy happiness just with declining wait, marginal my returns. Point, my point was not about that. My point mm-hmm. was about the, the, the um, po- positive correlation between yes. inequality, or the, sorry, the negative correlation between inequality and well-being. So yes, that's right. You can have uh, a, an objectively improving situation countries. for yes. the poor, mm-hmm. but if inequality is widening, you can have a decrease in well-being. Is that, so, would you right. say so that the, that's well, still true? Uh, what I would also, say, the inequality I mean, these, stats are yeah. so complicated and so politicized. Um, and what it's all correlational. And so uh, this book by Pickett, Pickett and Wilson, whatever it was, there, there are all kinds of correlational studies that will show that as Gini goes up, uh, as inequality goes up, you know, obesity, everything goes up. But these are really politicized. And when you listen to conservative analysts, they tell a very compelling story that is more complicated. What we can say for sure is that small homogeneous countries, the Scandinavian countries, which are the happiest countries, they have a lot of things going for them in terms of the way they're able to care for people. There is a trade-off between dynamism and decency, and countries that treat their people really decently are happier. That's true. Um, and the larger point there, or a larger point, is, I, I mean, you know, when you, you talk about that $70,000 threshold, I can just say, I get so weary of the way in the United States we we measure everything in terms of economic well-being because you can measure it, mm-hmm. but um, because you can pull out Quantify the numbers. It, yes. Um, yes. And we all know that that doesn't actually define us and that there's something going on at that. I mean, above $70,000, you know, it's other it's things. It's 140 in New York, by the it's way. It's 140 in New York. Um, <laughs> There are, I mean, the two million dollars doesn't make you happier than seventy thousand because no, there's some it does. kind of that it does. does. Yeah, it does. Okay, well, I I just don't know if I believe that, but um, <laughs> I guess you know. So, but you know, play, because I don't know how we define these things, right? I don't, you know, what a definition of happiness or well-being is is very complex, mm-hmm. and we all know. I mean, what you said about the Scandinavian countries, the the sense of well-being is also about Social Care. capital, yeah, and yes. trust. It's yes. about and good governance, low corruption. In addition, and they have that to, there. In addition to not worrying about survival or mm-hmm. whether you'll be able to afford to put your children through mm-hmm. college. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to talk about um, the, the language of, of the, the idea of the human spirit, which I think is implicit in a discussion about conscience, although with a potentially very different imagination about what that means than either of you was mm-hmm. raised with or, you know, your Orthodox Jewish uh, family. I mean, Mel, you've said that one thing that drew you to anthropology is that it was a way of looking extensively at the human spirit. Um, yeah, so... And so, what do you mean, uh, when you have fill that with what no, those that, connotations are? I, you know, just at, a, at a certain point, um, I, I stopped being a dualist. Uh, when I was seventeen, or, and yeah. and and that means I didn't. I stopped thinking that there was something uh, that explained the human spirit that was not in the brain, in the genes, in the hormones, and you know. So, so what I was trying to do was to 
preserve in 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 the Tangled Wing and in other things I've written is to to preserve a uh, a respectful and and uh, almost poetic view of of human nature and human potential without being a dualist. Mm-hmm. Know? So can you can you assert that that well there. There's nothing that we think uh, the, the, uh, or feel or, or, or aspire to or do for each other or to, to each other that can't be explained by some buzz of electricity zooming around the circuits of the brain and, and yet still stand back from, from that and realize that, that our subjective experience and our intersubjective experience uh, is is not going to be uh, to, to be handled well by the language of neurobiology, mm-hmm. even though in the background we may think some of us may think that that it, it's not it's not all there is right, right? or, right. or right. economic um, the, you know, the, status. The, which yeah. right. there's something there's something to to uh, human beings that's more than the sum of all those neuronal firings and and to human society that's. Uh, it's more than just material interactions and and commerce uh, and and uh, and that's something that I I think we have to preserve. That's why I use the term human spirit in mm-hmm. spite of not being a dualist. Mm-hmm. I mean, John, I I I feel like some. Um, you know, some implication of something expansive called the human spirit is also when you when you talk about, you know, when you say when you write to live virtuously as individuals and societies, we must understand how our minds are built. Um, we must find ways to overcome our natural self righteousness. We must respect and even learn from those whose morality differs from our own. Mm-hmm. We need the guidance of both ancient wid- wisdom and modern science to get the balance right. Mm-hmm. Is there a question there? Yeah. <laughs> well, what what is that? How would you talk about the, what that more is than you know than mm-hmm. the amount of money we make yeah. than yeah. Um, okay, sure. than the the, the, the scientific yeah. substance of ourselves that we right. can describe? So I, I decided to major in philosophy as an undergraduate uh, because while I was I was pre med at the time, but I had this like sort of shallow Woody Allen existential depression when I realized... Cause I, I'd been an atheist since a year after my bar mitzvah, and once, once I worked out that if there's no God, there's no afterlife, there's no meaning to life, uh, why do anything? You know, it was that, I forget which movie is it. He says, you know, but, but Alvi... You know, he says, the universe is expanding, but Alvi, Brooklyn isn't expanding, whichever <laughs> movie that is. Um, um, so it was this very, you know... Um, sort of philosophical depression. So I decided to, to major in philosophy to try to understand the meaning of life. And it turns out that philosophy, especially back then, had pretty much nothing to say about the meaning of life. It was just about logic, and it was, you know, analytic philosophy was not, not right. what you want to do. But I found a lot, I really much more enjoyed literature and psychology, and I felt that I learned a lot about um, human nature and what makes us happy and satisfied in psychology. And um, my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding mm-hmm. Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And I thought it would just be a collection of 10 chapters on 10 different ideas, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, true or false, mostly true. Um, <laughs> that's why you shouldn't coddle your children. Um, so, but by the end of the book, I realized that actually they were, all, all the chapters were actually tied together by the theme of relatedness, that people need to be related. We, we, 
we, we evolved, I believe, as an ultra-social species, living intensely social lives. And in the in, Enlightenment and in the Industrial Revolution, we got much more privacy, we live much more separated, we have so much autonomy, and we miss something. There's a, feel, there's a lack, there's a feeling of emptiness. It's almost as though we're bees, we evolved to be bees in the hive, and then we said, hey, break open the hive, we don't need the hive, right, go right. off, do what you want. Um, so the formulation I came to by the end of the happiness hypothesis, I'll save you all the trouble of buying the book, uh, it's this. Um, happiness comes from between. It comes from getting the right kind of relationship between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and that's broadly defined, just some sort of productive activity, and yourself and something larger than yourself. To really flourish, you need to feel that you are part of something big or something that will leave a mark that will do something. And I hear this from my students constantly. Everybody's looking for how can they leave a mark, help somebody, be part of something bigger. Uh, and so given our evolutionary history and the weird modern way we're living, we can still have fantastically satisfying lives. We just have to work at it harder mm-hmm. than people might have a few generations ago. Um. Coming out of the work you're doing now, this thinking about about capitalism and conscience, conscience, um, you talk about. You say we, we may attain forms of. You talk about forms of capitalism that you know your, your vision of the the best way this might go is that we attain forms of capitalism capitalism that exemplify dynamism with decency. So you know, just give us an idea of what that world looks like, that, sure. that society. Sure. So the big question is, how do you, so capitalism is creative destruction. You're, you're always going to have that. Pretty soon, you know, vast numbers of working class people are going to be out of work because of driverless cars and robots cleaning hotel rooms. So capitalism is creative destruction. Um, what we need to be thinking about is, is throwing out the old way that we gave people security. Now, in, in, in some countries, if you have a guaranteed income, that can work in some countries. In our country, you get security from your employer. You get your health insurance. Uh, now, Obamacare is a step in the right direction by freeing us from dependence on employers. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing increasing numbers of regulations and restrictions. In order to open any kind of business, you need to get so many certifications. You have to do so much paperwork. So it's kind of hard to start a business. Um, what I'd like to see is, uh, and I heard this wonderful idea from this, uh, a friend of mine, Nick Hanauer. Is a, uh, um, he runs various policy things in, in Seattle. The basic idea is if we can guarantee people security, everybody has a kind of a security account. If you can guarantee people security so that they could very easily do something new. They, they don't have to get a degree and get all kinds of, you know, wait online for, for 12 days to get, you know. It, so you want to encourage risk-taking and innovation, but you can't encourage risk-taking if people could fall and die. And so that's what we need to be thinking about. We're already a very dynamic country compared to most others. Um, how can we give people a little more security and take away a lot of the obstacles for people taking chances? Mm-hmm. Um, Mel, you've talked about our sense of wonder as a hallmark of our species. And, and I wonder, as you look at, uh, you know, moving forward, uh, you know, your, your scenario about how we might be able to work as well as possible with our capacity for conscience and for progress. I mean, how does that work? How does that fit in that, to that scenario? Well, the first, the first thing that come, came into my mind when you said that is standing out there before I came into the hall, uh, you're at the American a, a, Natural a, a, History a, Museum. What seemed like an endless troop of I don't know eight, nine, ten-year-old children went streaming past me into the hall of, of human evolution, and 
And I'm thinking, this is the future. In fact, I said it. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, to Kate, uh, and, and she's also the future. I, I mentioned because she's she's much younger than I am. But but this it, encouraging children to have that that sense of wonder about where we came from and and where we're going. Uh, is has got to be a, a, a very positive thing, I, I, uh, and I think that the the, the other function of this uh, wonderful museum is 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 to connect uh, uh, people of all ages, not just to the to the human past, but to the to the world uh, of nature uh, outside the human, and. <clears throat> to encourage a sense of wonder about both and, and a sense of of, uh, of awe uh, about n- not just the majesty of, of the natural world, but but n- now as we understand it, the fragility of, of the natural world. And, and um, I think that that's part of inculcating conscience. Hmm. For for children and and uh, and future generations now in a way that it never was, uh, never was before. Hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on being in a public conversation about culture and conscience with biological anthropologist Melvin Connor and social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Just in case we get to make radio out of this. I think I just have one final kind of line of inquiry. Um, so, Mel, you said something I, I found very wise. Um, you know, you said that this line, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, but we have to keep doing the bending. Um, is, is conscience, is one way to think about the meaning of conscience, you know, that which urges us and compels us to do so? Is, and how we keep each other accountable? Yes, totally. I, and 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 so I believe in the invisible hand of the market as a mainly positive force, um, but not without um, not without guidelines to prevent the, the even creative destruction from destroying too many people too too fast and hurting. Uh, and and hurting people too much, so it's about. Uh, and I I'm not surprised to find Sweden at the in that wonderful sweet spot on the graph in the upper right hand corner, and uh, uh, the Swedes are are maybe a, a somewhat less dynamic society in certain ways than we are, but the mm-hmm. very very. Uh, they have very high levels of well-being, very high levels of decency, as well as a certain amount of, of dynamism, and is certainly uh, a capitalist country with certainly uh, great murder uh, mystery writing, and, writing, right. yeah. And, yeah. And, and that too. Uh, uh, now, now I'm not saying that we can all be uh, all, that the entire world can turn into Sweden, uh, but I, but I, I do think that. Um, in, in a secular world, that's something that that uh, we can aspire to, uh, without losing too much of of our dynamism in the process. And so, so yes, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, but only because of 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 good people bending it and being impatient about how long it's taking and wanting it to happen faster. And I guess I disagree with that by saying uh, that. 
given the trends we saw in the world values data and the ways that generations change as they get peace and security growing up, I would say the arc of history or the arc of the universe bends towards justice, and it will do that um, regardless of what we do. Um, it's true that we can push it a little faster, and sometimes we do. Really? But I think we take too much credit for it, yeah. Yeah, so you really think that that no matter, that, that it's not mm-hmm. a matter of will or decision that that there is this trajectory. Well, slavery was going to disappear. I mean, there's no way that without the, without the Civil War, slavery would have disappeared, mm-hmm. but it would have taken longer, and that would have been horrible to have slavery longer. Um, but what I'm saying is we often take too much credit. I, I bring this up because I'm involved now in some controversies on college campuses where social justice activists have everybody walking on eggshells um, over charges of racism and sexism um, and microaggressions and, and demands for trigger warnings. And it's really getting weird and scary um, on college campuses. It's happening in high schools as well. Progress, uh, any, anywhere we have no political diversity, where everybody's on the left, you get these sort of social justice warriors, and they take credit for progress. They say, well, if we weren't, you know, if we don't stand up to racism and sexism everywhere, then there wouldn't be any progress. And so, we're, you know, and in fact, there's been amazing progress on all fronts, um, but they want to basically say, no, there isn't any progress. Things are getting worse. It's only us who, who are making things better. So I'm actually, I actually don't like people who devote themselves to bending the arc of justice. Uh, I mean, I think they're self-righteous um, and annoying people. Well, okay, look. So you don't like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. You don't like Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, no, there were, no, no. Right. Oh, there were, t- oh, yeah. In their time, it was, they, they pushed things along in a big but way. But now the world but is demand- already so just or so inevitably yes. progressing toward College justice. College campuses are. We don't need any more Martin Luther Kings or Elizabeth Cady Stantons. College campuses are, yes. Yes. College so the self-appointed are, social are, justice are, are a hothouse of, of, of immature people. Immature, self-righteous. Why oh, have to spend my life with? And uh, you know, a lot of good, <laughs> there are a lot of good things about it and a, and a lot of not-so-good things. But, but, you know, they're not a laboratory of, of the world. The, you know, we have tens of millions of Americans who are one, one illness or one funeral away from absolute mm-hmm. poverty and yeah. disaster. Uh, and we, we, have, uh, we have a long way to go to make that different. We have uh, far from uh, achieved equality between the sexes uh, in, in our society, much less elsewhere in the world. We have, we have uh, um, tens of millions of girls who have been had their clitorises removed because somebody... Conscience says that's a good thing to do. We have, we have. Uh, okay, but, people, but in, yeah. you know, okay. there are a lot of things. Country, that, there are a lot country, of things that we can work on actively. Yes, but, but I also yeah, wonder. If, uh, first of all, can I just say we're we're winding down, and okay. this is, all right. we no can't finish up. this. And okay. but no, I'm. That's that's not the important point. The, what you're objecting to, though, is is you know, without going into that, is a sliver of the ways human beings bend the arc of the moral universe mm-hmm. towards justice, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of argument um, that's taking place. I, I mean, I, I would hate to reduce the idea of human beings who are involved in, and even the word language of social justice gets politicized, mm-hmm. but, but I, let's yeah. stick with this. People who are, who are bending that arc, I would hate to, um, to write that endeavor off by just pointing at you know, the ways we do advocacy in the 21st century, which is what I think a lot of that is about. Um, I'm going to posit that Adam Smith Smith helped bend the moral arc of the universe toward justice. By uh, formalizing (laughs) capitalism and helping it grow, yes. Right. 
Well, and, and also, Mel, the examples you just gave are, are the things we can despair about. But I, mean, I would say the people who are bending that arc are the ones who are not just speaking up about it, but putting their lives on the line. And, 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 and don't think yeah. that it's going to come about automatically and, and nothing flat. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that um, there are certain processes in the world that are, are going on that, that, that are very positive. And, uh, we can agree on that. We can make certain things happen a little faster than they're... Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even evolutionary biologists but, will say that, that evolution is not necessarily good. There is such a thing as decay. Um, you know, and sure there's such means. a thing as as encouraging pro-social behavior, and um, so that evolution takes a good turn. I mean, evolution is, isn't just a, you know leave us lead us from one high point to the next. It has all these wild cards in it. Well, no, in general, I think evolutionary theorists would not say there's a direction or a trend or right. that evolution is good or bad. Right. But what we're talking about here is just specifically the evolution of conscience mm-hmm. and human cooperation. That does seem mm-hmm. to have a kind of a one-way okay. arc. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Robert Wright made this point very clearly in his book Non-Zero back around 1999. So evolution in general doesn't have much of a direction, but human evolution actually kind of does. Right. Um, when you, for the piece you wrote for the Humans in Nature website, um, you know, you talked about the vast change of this moment, which is unsettling for us as creatures, right, mm-hmm. physiologically. Um, and you said it leads us to want to talk to each other about what it means. Uh, and I liked this language you used about the ethics of it all, uh, Phrasing these as kind of ethical questions of ethical inquiry, mm-hmm. you know, what should we celebrate? What should we lament and resist? Right. Uh, how, how would you start to answer those questions? What what we should celebrate? What we should lament and resist? Um, well, I think that since our lives are, and our societies are in constant change, and none of us can see the whole picture at any one time. Um, it really helps. And I think this is what a liberal arts education should be. should have the tools to jump back and forth between different perspectives. And this is why multiculturalism and anthropology are so important. We need different perspectives. Um, so, for example, as we get richer and as, as we get more material wealth, I think Christian conservatives and Catholics have been very, very perceptive critics of what it does to what consumerism does to our our souls, you might say. Um, and so, you know, Christian conservatives have a certain perspective from which they can point out to us what we lose when everything becomes just an option that you pick as you're customizing whatever it is you're buying. And we can now do this with our mates, with various apps. You can choose exactly what you want and only see the, you know, the screens for those people. Um, so uh, you know, libertarians can point out to us what we lose when we give government ever more power. So I guess what I'm saying is with constant change and our incredibly limited kind of um, um, self-righteous and biased minds, we need, um, we need multiple perspectives on what's happening to us. We need to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this is why I'm so alarmed by, just one last time to return to the social justice warriors, is because our biggest problem as a nation is not discrimination against, or it's not, our biggest problem as a nation now is that the left-right divide is getting ever more hostile. Um, the surveys show that the way people think about the other side is getting more and more hostile since the 90s. And this is what's preventing us from functioning as a nation. Um, yet at universities, at least, diversity always means race and gender and now sexual orientation. And we've made so much progress on those, yet our universities are 
really suffering because we've lost all our political diversity. In most departments, there are no non-liberals. I mean, psychology, the social psychology, there's only one person who's not a liberal. His name is Rick McCauley. He's a friend of mine. No, and nobody can find another. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, these are real problems. We need to be working on this problem of political divisiveness. We need more political diversity, and we need to understand each other. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm concerned about people who just say, you know, I'm bending the arc of justice, and you conservatives, you're all racists, and I hate you. But you believe that whether you write another book about this or we resolve it somehow, that will, that will develop into greater cooperation? Oh, you mean whether my life makes any difference in what's well, no, going no, to no, uh, happen I mean, I think to us? I, no, I think you said that you really feel that that, that is happening, that, that, that human history always moves towards cooperation. I guess it does get to the point of, is there any reason for us to be sitting here tonight? Or <laughs> should we just go home and watch, read Swedish murder mysteries? Mm. Um, no, I think we need to understand what's happening to us. We especially need to understand our limitations in understanding what's happening to us. Um, people are very confident um, about why capitalism is so terrible or, or why it's so wonderful. And you know, I think we all need to be more epistemologically humble. We all to, we need to recognize that, again, you know, again, it's like the world is changing, we're changing, and we're so biased and partisan and tribal mm-hmm. that we however certain we are about our political convictions, we're wrong about a lot of them. Mel, I think I might ask you that question too, but I want you to start with what we should lament and resist and then go to what we should celebrate. And you get the last word. What we should lament Just and to, resist and, uh, uh, and what we terms should of, celebrate. Yeah, yeah. And so, what we should celebrate. So my kids will never forgive me if they listen to this. And I don't, don't once again mention that there are unpredictable nonlinearities and uh, in the future of of, uh, of our species, which can result from from things we don't understand about the natural world, about uh, about climate change, uh, and and there could be really terrible consequences uh, in terms of, of uh, a reversal of the the long term trend uh, toward toward lower levels of violence. So, or even uh, uh, Malthusian disasters in at least uh, some parts of the world, rather rather than a, a simple linear improvement. I think we should we should celebrate how far we've come, and uh, what we've accomplished in uh, in increasing prosperity, in increasing uh, e- equality, in uh, in making life better for uh, for the vast majority of people. On the planet, and, and than than it than it ever has been before, and uh, and I I think uh, we should celebrate a, a, a sense of hope about what will happen on the other side of this 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 bottleneck that we have to get through because of of the increasing size of the human population and much more so because of the the increasing aspirations, which which the planet may not be able to, to sustain until that time when, when the human population starts to decline. So mm-hmm. I, I, anthropologists take the long view. I'm very optimistic about the year 2200. <laughs> okay. Not right. so optimistic about the year 2050 or 2075. Okay. Um, so thank you, Jonathan Haidt. Thank you, Melvin Connery. We all leave here a little bit more epistemologically humble. Thank you all for coming. Thanks, Christine.